Hello and welcome to another episode of Two Guys Discussing Software. It's it's episode eight the most. It's two Irish guys. Thank you, Brendan. Thank you again. And this is our podcast, the original podcast, where we discuss everything about software world, the best ways to avoid being ripped off, the alternative options, and how to save money on software. And I'll eventually get the Irish bit. Thank you, Brendan. I'm here with Brendan. My name is Tomás O'Leary. I'm the CEO and founder of Origina, and I'm with my very good friend, Brendan Walsh. Welcome. Good morning, everybody. We are going to be joined by a really special guest, somebody that I have a huge amount of time for. He has done some fantastic work, um, Mr. Dan Sheffert. He is uh, better known as the guy who took on Google, and he is a lawyer based out of Paris. Um, he's going to be talking to us from Paris later on in a little short while, and uh, he's done a massive amount of work for data privacy. And because we're here to talk about a very important topic, the abuse of power by large corporations yeah, a long running uh topical point i think yeah, you know, yeah. they've been abusing their power for forever really and it's a lot of the reason we see a lot of angst and everywhere yeah. around the world yeah the abuse of power is increasing as the tech companies get very big and uh, but they've been abusing power whether it comes to contract negotiations in the past and now their abuse of power over the, the the data that they have and how they you know use data so yeah so it's going to be an interesting conversation yeah so where, where have you been? Where have we been? <laughs> yeah, it's been a few weeks yeah. since we spoke to everybody. Bit of travel under the belt, indeed. We were in Frankfurt together. Yeah, yeah it we, was. Got, we got back this time from Germany, which is good. What a fantastic conference! We talked about obviously we talk about every week here, every month we talk. We talk about ways of saving money, ways of tackling this, the big software vendors, and we had some we had some fantastic input into the CureCon conference in Frankfurt two weeks ago. Yeah, very nice conference, well attended, very nice audience. Uh, indeed, yeah. indeed, some really good people. We had I, I don't know if you did you the opening one of the opening debates. There was um, a debate about. Cloud would cloud take over or as a service take over or would it not? We had uh, Noor Khalif uh, from Philips, well Philips, and we had Mario Gurgiev from Novartis. They did a fantastic job. It was a great kind of Oxford Oxford style debate mm. that was uh, was on. It was some really was some really good stuff there. Yeah, had some good chats with Mario afterwards during the coffee break. Yeah, he's, yeah, he's a good guy, very well informed. Also, Kerpal Verdi from Jaguar. Land Rover, so I had a great chat with him as well. But he did a very good presentation on disrupting uh, disruption of the, of the supply chain, which uh, seems to be a very topic at some of these events. But he did a very good job. Did you see the, the piece on use software? I mean, I don't. We don't talk about that yeah. very often, actually, on this topic. Maybe it's a topic you should talk about again. But obviously, here in Europe, we're all aware now. I think at this stage, you were able to buy secondhand. Maybe we're not all aware actually, but you're able to buy secondhand software in the marketplace. Yeah, um, which is fantastic. And some really good conversation. The following day, there was a kind of a, there was a, there was a roundtable conversation mm. that I that I was at, where they were talking about it. And actually, some of the people at the roundtable actually didn't even know you could do this. Mm. This, this law has been around for some time. But Stefan Routinen from Swisscom the following day, talking about where he had done this. And actually, what was really interesting about what he'd done is this story about he was on a journey to the cloud, and they were left with a significant portion of kind of on-premise software. And they were able to sell it in the marketplace. Yeah. Um, I mean, and so, okay, clearly the benefit to Swisscom is that they were able to get money for assets that they paid for. Um, but obviously then somebody else was able to get some uh, software for obviously much, much Yeah, Stefan's a progressive guy. And, yeah. uh, you know, so he was taking a lead here. I mean, that you can tell by the number of companies that are out there now selling secondhand licenses, mostly of Microsoft, some Adobe, uh, that the market's, you know, uh, beyond emerging but uh 
yet to see any secondhand market yet for IBM licenses, although it's it came up a few times in the show. You know, can yeah. I sell my Cognos licenses? Can yeah. I sell, you know, PVU licenses? Yeah. So but then there was another great presentation, actually probably one of the, you know, better attended ones. Oh stop. Of yours <laughs> uh, that we've had in the past. But um but uh, stopping the block, you know, how to stop the block, which is really about, which is in any kind of vendor situation, when you're when you're selling a concept, maybe you're in your organization trying to sell the concept of third party software or buying secondhand licenses. Who are the blockers? Yeah, yeah. And how do you how do you explain to them the benefits of? So I thought you did a really good uh, job. Listen, we're not going to talk about me. We're not here to talk about me. But there was actually, <laughs> but they had Nuno Juramito from Bridgestone, and he's not Japanese. He said that himself. He's a Portuguese guy. And Nuno did a great piece, actually, talking about contracts and IBM. Particularly, we know that their contracts. But one of the big things they see in businesses is this contract erosion concept. So it's where you actually have these massive contracts. You think you've locked it down. You're kind of walking away. There's a celebration. And when you actually go back to look at these massive contracts, the value, they're actually the cost increases, the creepage that happens that of increases, it's called, we call it contract erosion. And mm. um, we had thought you'd locked in some pricing or you'd thought you'd, you'd, you'd locked in your, your cost for visibility perspective, how you're actually able to people are losing these costs um, or inc- the costs are increasing significantly along the journey. Yeah, unnecessarily. Yeah, completely yeah. unnecessary. And actually what happens is what we see is that uh, organizations decide to decrease the use of a particular products. Yeah, it might be multiple products. And what the big tech companies do, and uh, we see it all the time, obviously, is that they try and maintain the, the amount of money that the organizations are paying. So they'll just say, well, you've just lost your discount that we were giving you. So you're spending a million dollars on maintenance. You're using less software. It's more stable than it was before. And you're still being asked to pay the same or yeah. more money. And actually, it's many cases because these contracts are too long, perhaps. It's like three, five years or more in some cases. And they're totally inflexible because businesses are changing so quickly. So you're locking in a contract for... For, for th- even three years is probably too long. Yeah, they're, too, they're too complex and nobody really knows the rules, you know. So, uh, and, they're, and they're designed to, you know, it's abuse, It's an abuse of power. Yeah. It's an abuse of the power position of the mega vendors. They think they can get away with this type of uh, negotiation behavior. But uh, but I think there was, um, speaking of mega vendors, in negotiation with mega vendors, Michael per- Perkins and uh, Fulton Sinir from Alliance and Michael from Volvo had this very discussion about um, you know, finding the hidden costs in in the contracts and, yeah. and there's plenty of hidden costs in there. So, a uh, very good presentation. Everybody should, if they haven't seen it, I think they should maybe request it from uh, ProcureCon IT and see if they get a copy of that. So, lots of good tips and tricks there. I saw some other things in the news that, that were very interesting as well. They were peace. I mean, this time of year, people are doing their tax returns all over, you know, in many, many jurisdictions. But in the US, they had some reports about uh, the latest article was in Business Insider. Tech companies are paying <laughs> almost zero federal income tax. You know, you got an example of Amazon making a, a $10 billion in income and yet getting a rebate. I mean, okay, accept they employ a lot of people, but they earn significant profits. Is it not their duty to pay taxes towards the state that they're in? And when the roads and the transportation and the regulation and all the systems that are put in place by, by governments and policymakers, they're not prepared to contribute towards it at all. Yeah, and the Federal Reserve is, is, is under pressure because they have less funds to, to fund, fund that infrastructure. But it's it's not just paying no tax. In some cases, it's negative tax. Well, this is the thing. This yeah. is the thing. We also yeah. have the exact same thing. IBM, they were supposed to pay $500 million, but after their rebates ended up... 46% 
tax payments. I want to know who their accountants are. They're doing a pretty good job. They're doing a pretty good job for sure. You know, we don't take that. I mean, I mean, it was a load of get load of other names there from you know the the some of the airlines and some of the General Motors was there. Yeah, you know, it was. I thought it was a very interesting list of organisations that were there. I mean, but it's nuts. And again, it goes back to this abuse. You know, there's a balance. And I don't think we're getting the right balance. Yeah, taking advantage of the new tax laws that came in 2017 that were yeah. designed to help them yeah. do this, you know. Yeah. So they're kind of designed on purpose yeah. to, to make the wealthier wealthy. And mm. it actually is widening the wealth gap between those that have and those that don't. So yeah. Yeah. I think Elizabeth Warren is all over this. You know, she's trying to yeah. repeal some of these things and, and make it fair, you know, decrease the wealth gap that's actually widening. Yeah, you know? there's a balance here. I mean, some of the, I think what's happened is some of these organizations feel as if they're afraid of nobody. You know, yeah. they're not afraid of their own customers. They're not afraid of the authority. They're afraid of nobody. They feel as if they are the authority, don't it's they? A sense, well, it's a sense of entitlement. But it's just all back to its abuse of power. You yeah. know, we've seen that recently. I've had an interesting story with, with Oracle. Oh, yeah? Yeah. So, uh, and Larry Ellison, our good friend Larry. So Oracle are suing the Department of Labour because the Department of Labour has been probing them for acts of discrimination against women and minorities. So basically this goes back to 2017 where the Department of Labour sued Oracle because they were paying women and non-male white workers 13% less in, in their salaries. Yeah. They were getting 33% less shares. And they were getting 30% less in bonus payments. Wow. So the Department of Labour sued Oracle. Yeah, as they should. Yeah. But now Oracle are saying, this is unfair. You shouldn't be suing us. You should leave us alone and leave us to our own, just, you know, do what we want. So now they're countersuing the Department of Labour because they're saying the Department of Labour is discriminating against them. On what basis? Just because they're taking up the court over something they shouldn't be doing? Just because it's another, you know, abuse of power. Yeah. They're basically saying, we can do what we like. So, you know. So if I break the law or speed limit... I get a ticket, I can sue the, the local government. Because you shouldn't have got it, you know, because they're, they're, hol- they're holier they're, than thou. They're abusing, my, they're abusing their power by pushing the law on top I of me. You know, bashing their chests. And, but it's typical of, I think, of Oracle to be quite litigious. You know, it's not the first time we've seen this happen. I mean, yeah. IBM were at it as well in terms of abusing their power position discriminating against workers, discriminating against workers over the age of 40 uh, by letting them go and bringing in um, younger millennials and Asian workers to replace them. So, yeah. you know, so it's just a constant kind of theme. Wow. And speaking of Oracle, actually, I don't know whether you saw the, well, actually, uh, and abuse of power. They had a, recently published the, the Forbes America's Top 50 Givers. Oh, yeah. Charity Givers. They must be um, high up there, are they? And <laughs> well, what was interesting about the top 20 richest Americans, which, speaking of Oracle, Larry Ellison is the number five on the list, according to Forbes, and uh, at $58 billion in wealth. Not a bad amount well, of wealth. Yeah. And his contribution as a percentage... He's very philanthropic, is he? Oh, yeah. Well, 0.0%. 0. 0%. Excellent. They didn't actually even add the extra digits on. <laughs> that was it, 0.0%. Oh, my word. Yeah, that yeah. was what he was prepared to do. But he he's very busy. He's just invested with Robert De Niro and the Nobu restaurant chain, which is a nice oh, restaurant. Yeah, Japanese it's restaurant. a fancy yeah. restaurant. Have you ever been to it? I've been to it once in New York. Yeah, I haven't it, had the privilege. Well, the, you should at one time. Uh, it is <laughs> now very, that Larry has invested, well, I, 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 might. I, I might not. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's only a resort he's invested in. He's not invested right. in the restaurants, as far as I, as far as I understand. But... Yeah, 0.0%, but he's busy, busy. What about, what about Lake Tahoe? Yeah. yeah. 
What about the other guy? Oh Larry, yeah, there's... Larry. The other. Oh, the other Larry. Larry. Well, the other guy. Oh yeah, it's interesting. The way, well, there was some Bill Gates and Warren Buffett, two point six percent of wealth from Bill Gates, and given he's he's actually, he's actually yeah. ninety seven billion dollars. Warren Buffett, three point nine percent of his of his wealth. But the other zero point zero two other zero point zero percenters on the list: yeah. Larry Page and Sergey Brin on oh, Google. Google. Yeah, oh, yeah, yeah, according to that. That's very, very... Maybe that's why they're stepping down. Did you hear that? They're stepping down ah, very recently. Yes, yeah. I heard that. Yeah, yes. I'm not sure where they're going, but yeah. maybe it's... To, maybe they might do some charitable... Co- charitable work. Yeah, yeah, they're very busy not to be giving any money to charity. Yeah, I can imagine. I can imagine, yeah. Speaking of Google, we have... Actually, we have a, a fantastic guest, obviously, we've mentioned earlier, who has been prepared to take on Google in a different way, obviously not focusing on their charitable contributions, but on some of their data privacy and their obligations really as a provider and a storer of data, and particularly with regards to information on what they hold about us and information they hold on that other people put up there about us. Um, we've got Dan Sheffert. Dan, I introduced you earlier. I think you're there now, Dan. Welcome. Are you in Paris? Are you listening? Are you joining us? Well, first of all, great pleasure being with you. And I'm in Paris. I'm in Paris right now. And, uh, and uh, of course, uh, we have a general strike in this country right now. But I'm with you. Absolutely. You can you background, Dan, and we know each other for a number of years. And we've had some great conversations. When we first met, my introduction to you was that you were you'd worked for IBM. Is not that correct? Well, yes, absolutely. I worked for IBM in the in the eighties, and I was actually part of a, a, a. I was working on the on the antitrust case that in those days this was the biggest antitrust case, which was first started up by the Department of Justice in the U.S. and then afterwards by the European Commission. These antitrust cases dealt very much, obviously, with abuse of dominant position, and I can't help but comparing to what we see right now with the same European yep. Commission starting its antitrust cases, almost a crusade against tech. This is the real challenge that we face today, take abuse of power. And I very much like the subject of today's um, podcast because abuse of power, abuse of corporate power indeed, is a major challenge, not only to business, but also to democracy. And as someone who worked for a big corporation and then left, obviously, how did you get to where you are today? I mean, you've, you founded an organization uh, called um, AID. Um, you have been speaker all over the world on this topic how did you how did you end up in this position actually my main interest in law has always been the angle of human rights and what i quickly saw was that when something is being celebrated in an uncritical fashion then what you need to do is to see what can actually happen if something goes wrong and how could how could that affect human rights and what i Quickly, quickly saw that the internet was the new battleground for human rights and uh, started working on analyzing to what extent and what human rights would actually be most challenged by this new medium of communication. And what I quickly saw was that one of our basic and probably the most fundamental human rights of all, presumption of innocence, is the human right, which again, I would say is really the most important of all human rights. And that is the single human right which is trampled upon every day, every second of the day on the internet. So this is why I decided to fight uh, for the right to be forgotten and also the right to be re- to rectification because unfortunately the internet today can destroy your reputation in a matter of nanoseconds. And whether you win in court three or five years later uh, makes no difference because you're dead in the meantime. 
Why do you think big corporations do this? I mean, it's it's been going on for a long time. I mean, it, it, what, what you're describing is, is is because of the latest technology, but abuse of power and abuse of rights, um, it, it's it's been around us pretty much all our lives, all of history, really. And it doesn't seem to be getting any better, does it? Yeah, well, what's very interesting is that you know, if you look at some of the some of the American philosophers, of course, there's there was John Dewey who came out with very interesting remarks talking about the the shadow of big corporations, and there was even Teddy Roosevelt who started very much the uh, the antitrust cases, the classic antitrust cases at the turn of the last century, as a consequence of recognizing that if you have too much power in corporations, it becomes a real challenge to democracy, and of course that challenge has grown bigger and bigger, because we all know that the manipulative power of controlling information is the strongest manipulating power we have. In the classic antitrust eras, what we were talking about would be electricity, would be oil, you know, Rockefeller Standard Oil, that kind of thing. And that was caused also a danger to democracy. But in no way does it compare to the danger that we have today, which is that of controlling information. And if you control information, you control people's minds. And if you control people's minds, you actually not only control democracy, but you also control, as UNESCO says, uh, you know, it's the difference between war and peace. War and peace are created in men's and women's minds. And we have left the control of our minds to two or three corporations. And that is completely inimical to all human values that I subscribe to. Yeah, yeah. It's funny you say that because we're bringing it back to just the, obviously the industry that we're in um, and the software industry and particularly the, the mega vendors, which who we talk about regularly on this on this show. They have they genuinely have managed to convince people of a certain truth. And it's and, and this is not just people, it's corporations. Other corporations have been almost duped and, you know, they've been duped into thinking that they have no choice that they are almost obliged to do certain things. Um, and it, it's partly because there is, there has been, and you, you mentioned earlier, the, the right to be forgotten, which is, which is a, a law and it's, it's legislation. Uh, there is no, there are very few laws and legislation that apply to the software industry at all, other than the st- standard laws that apply to everybody else. But there, there, you know, every other corporation, but there's, because it, and it's so pervasive now. It's, yeah, it needs to. It need, it, it needs yeah. to be something. Yeah, yeah. It it all boils down to the the absolutely indispensable basic rule that should govern all human discourse and which should really also govern all policy making, which is that of accountability. And unfortunately, what has happened when it comes to accountability on the internet, which spreads into other areas, including software, is that you, you're simply not accountable for putting for creating the infrastructure which is used by other people. And instead of increasing your accountability, which is the normal kind of thing to say, if you have power, we see a different paradigm which is being developed saying like, the more power you have, the less accountable you are. And that of course makes no sense, but that's the way it is today. So clearly they've been very good, these companies at selling this message somehow on the back of, of free speech, which is typically what they do, or protection of creativity, which would be a kind of defense of unlimited monopoly power based on, on intellectual property rights or something like that. They'll always find some sort of value that they can use to back up their strategy on. And they've been very, very good at manipulating everybody to 
believe that it is absolutely necessary in order to protect creativity that you have unlimited monopolistic power. Of course, that's not true, but they've been very, very, very good at selling that message. Absolutely. And, and Dan, do you, do you think that just the sheer speed at which these organizations have got from, you know, startup organizations to, you know, big, becoming the largest vendors in the world and the largest, you know, uh, processors of, of, of personal data? Do you think that kind of speed has just, you know, taken regulators by surprise and they're not able to keep up they can't pass the regulations or controls fast enough that that you know these organizations were barely here 10 years ago and now they're the largest most dominant organizations in the world has that got anything to do with it i'm afraid it's worse than that nobody knew back in 1996 when we had the famous declaration of independence of john perry barlow saying that government was not welcome on the internet nobody knew where we would be today and it is true that government and, and the rest of us were taken somewhat by surprise but today the problem is, is different. Today it is a question of government not having the power any longer to regulate, even if they wanted to. And it's also a question of being afraid of them because they can actually decide whether you would be reelected or not. It's much worse than being taken by surprise. We, we saw with the Obama administration, it already started having these revolving doors with tech. And now this has become almost irreversible. They can decide not only the fate of a politician, but the fate of a political party. So would you, if you were a politician, you know, accept that challenge and fall out directly with them? You probably wouldn't. I, w I was reading there about, you know, Angela Merkel's desire to kind of regain, you know, digital sovereignty. Most of the data, you know, that we're talking about and abuse of such data resides in, you know, I think six of the largest companies in the world are all US companies and the others are Chinese companies, maybe. But Angola and 28 member states are talking about, you know, digital sovereignty, maybe setting up European infrastructure for data to get back control. Do you think that that has any merit, Dan, or what do you think about that? Better late than never, right? What we need in Europe is a strong industrial policy. We have the Commission on Competition Law, and they have, of course, especially Margaret Vesta, have been very strong in trying to develop such an industrial policy, but it goes beyond competition law. What we need is an industrial policy in the field of artificial intelligence. That's going to be a matter of urgency and simply doesn't exist any longer. Look at what happened with Airbus. Airbus is now you know, winning market share even in the U.S., in spite of the latest decision by the WTO saying that Airbus has to refund several billion euros of illicit government subsidies, Airbus is winning against Boeing in the US. We need the same thing. I'm using alternative search engines and I'm, for instance, using the one that was developed in France called Quant. But it's, uh, it's good, but it's, it's, it doesn't have exactly the same function, so it's going to be very, very hard to compete. What I think we should do is accept that as a fact and then in, uh, develop an industrial policy on artificial intelligence. Artificial intelligence, the game is not over yet. That is going to be the big paradigm shift. Artificial intelligence is probably the greatest challenge to civilization that we have ever faced. I mean, just imagine the consequences on social unrest. And you talked about the wealth gap. It's not going to grow any, any, any smaller with artificial intelligence. On the contrary, here we have a new player coming into the game, which is ahead of a game already, by the way, which is China. And China is number one on artificial intelligence today. China is number one, both because they have over one billion people 
which is much more than in the US and in Europe, and also because they don't have data privacy laws. And they have merged platforms, which would be the envy of Facebook and the others, like in WeChat, which allow them to, to monitor conversion rates, purchases direct. It's like as if you have had Facebook, Google, and Amazon in one big platform, and they can take, they can collect all the data they want. And data, as we all know, drives artificial intelligence. It's not really a problem of Europe against the US and Silicon Valley. The way I see it is uh, Europe pit against China on this. We need a strong industrial policy, and we don't have that in Europe today. And that's really interesting, Dan. Is there a place, though, as well, as a lawyer, because obviously part of what you do and your profession does is, is ultimately some of these things have to go into a court of law. And we know your own success with Google and you know, what you had to do ultimately is you had to take a case against Google. Isn't that correct? Yeah, there, there are several aspects of the case that I had against Google, but I think the most important would be extraterritoriality which is probably the biggest legal problem we have today because the internet is by definition universal. Sometimes this debate is framed as the internet against the splinternet, right? So uh, do we want a universal internet where everybody has access to the same information or do we have do we end up having like 195 different internets which is happens to be the number of countries in UNESCO? This is the big debate today. And of course, today, the internet is, apart from China, one big universal medium. And that then creates a problem of laws in one country conflicting with laws in another country. And when we look at the right to be forgotten, this is a European law, and it doesn't apply in the US, and it doesn't look as if the US is going to enact anything that would be remotely similar to the, to the right to be forgotten, at least in the short term. There are proposals in New York to introduce a right to be forgotten, but it won't be done. So for many, many years to come, we will have the clash just on the right to be forgotten in Europe against the non-recognition of the right to be forgotten in the US, just as an example. So what I did was I established a basis of extraterritoriality, allowing a data subject in Europe, that could be you, it could be anybody, to actually uh, vindicate your European rights against the subsidiary in, in my particular case, it was Google, but it could be any non-European company against the local European subsidiary. So I obtained daily penalties against Google in France until Google in the US would dereference certain sites. That, that was pretty landmark in the sense that now we can actually enforce our laws, our European laws against the local subsidiary of of American companies, even though the local subsidiary cannot delete links. In other words, typically what you would say was that you really cannot impose a, a daily penalty upon a corporation to do something if they can't do it. Sounds pretty wow. uh, logical. And in this particular case, Google France, like any other subsidiary, does not have access to the search engine. All they do is they sell advertising. And by the way, that's uh, also for tax reasons, which I'll get back to in a second because you talked about tax. Uh, so they're just they're just advertising agencies in each and every country, right? It's a bit different in Ireland, as you know. But in the rest of the world, the subsidiaries are just selling advertising and they get whatever fee or commission they, that any third-party advertising agency would get. 
Mm. And they they don't have access to the search engine. The search engine is a power reserve sitting somewhere, probably in Silicon Valley, but who knows? But it's certainly not in the local subsidiary in Europe. So they could argue, say, listen, you know, uh, you're imposing a daily penalty on us to do something we can't do. We're just selling ads. So the, the judgment I got was very important in so far as it said, well, you know, basically what it said is, is that if one company is inextricably linked, and those are the words used in the judgment, to another company, in other words, if Google France is inextricably linked to Google Inc. in the US, in the sense that it cannot function without Google in the US, which is different from just saying that, they, that one owns the other, it cannot function without the other, then the subsidiary can, can be imposed daily penalties until the other company does what it is supposed to do. And that, of course, extends the extraterritorial reach of European laws enormously. So, so Dan, I'm just curious, did, did those daily penalties get imposed? No, because they took did it they... down. They took it down. Oh, they took it down in time. Yeah, okay. Now, um, just just a few words about tax. I said that I would get back to it, and I listened uh, very carefully to your discussion about tax, which I found fascinating. And um, actually, right now, uh, this is just a coincidence. You didn't know this. I wrote a letter to one of the top uh, officers in Google for international public policy on tax. I actually wrote that letter last week, and in particular, involving Google. I don't know whether Google is going to answer it, but I would even say the non-answer will serve my purpose just as much as an answer. And point one is tax and social uh, responsibility. So I, of course, refer to the so-called double Irish and, and, and Dutch sandwich, which in this particular case allows Google, as you all know. Uh, and I should say Google is not the only company doing this, right? But I'm just... In yeah, we know that, yeah. <clears throat> yeah, no, no. Which allows Google to 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 move through this uh, this very sophisticated tax structure, uh, proceeds coming from Europe, and then channeled back either to the Cayman Islands and Bermuda, where they eventually end up. So what I do is I describe that system in some detail in the letter, and I ask this public policy officer, whom I know, whether the above account is essentially factual. I would hope that he would say yes or no to that. And then come some of my questions. Why does Google operate a system designed, indeed it has no other purpose, than to reduce taxes? Is it because, A, Google believes that avoiding taxes is inherent in capitalism and that Google is simply a victim of this state of affairs? The reason I ask that question is that Eric Schmidt, during an interview, said that it was a consequence of capitalism. I believe that we agree that there is no logical reason why capitalism should be asocial. There is certainly no intrinsic reason leading to that conclusion. A second observation in this regard is that obviously Google is not a victim of some predefined rulebook on capitalism. Google is free to define its own rules and its own version of capitalism. In any case, the purpose of my query is not to engage in semantics but simply to understand the policy and how it fits with Google's new motto. And the new motto is employees of Alphabet and its subsidiaries and controlled affiliates should do the right thing. All right. Do the right thing. You probably all remember that in the old days. Of yeah. Don't be evil was faced by do the right thing. All right. So then I ask, is avoiding to pay tax doing the right thing? Mm, interesting question. 
So after that, uh, what I say is, I believe that most people would salute and commend these initiatives. Philanthropy is indeed a significant dimension of corporate social responsibility, but philanthropy should be practiced after tax and not instead of tax. Yeah. So, you know, these are, these are some of the questions. I don't know whether they will answer them or whether they will not answer them, but it will certainly be part of my next uh, Google initiative. Wow, wow. And I think you, the, the do the right thing, they actually cut off the final piece of that. It's do the right thing for themselves, I think, is, <laughs> what, they, yeah. is what it actually probably really means. Um, I think your story, though, particularly your story around the case that you took, I think is really pertinent to bring this back finally to because we're, we're getting to the end of the podcast. But the, the, this, the, what, what we can do to maybe take, I guess, as they said in the UK, take back control of the power that some of these corporations and amongst many of the other things you talked about in terms of legislation and other activities, maybe at some point somebody has to go and take these guys to task and actually ultimately perhaps take them to court. Um, and that may be the only place for these things to be resolved. Well, yes, uh, we, we already have the antitrust cases in Europe. I mentioned Margaret Vestager. There are some five competition cases and she's doing a magnificent job. Uh, the, the problem with these cases is that they deal with this abuse of dominant position. They don't lead to breaking up the company. Of course, that is what we saw in the AT&T case. And it's very, very complicated to break up these companies. And I don't re actually know whether it would be the right thing to do, as opposed to regulating their conduct. They were, those are two different things, right? Uh, but there is an alternative to taking them to court. And that alternative is you and me and everybody else. I mean, we still have the power. And the beauty about the fact that their power is based on information, which is also the danger of that power. But the beauty of that power is that we could just take our clicks somewhere else. We have alternatives. Nothing is easier than just stop using them. I stopped using yeah. them. This is 18 months ago. And as I mentioned, I use Quant, which is the uh, French alternative, but I also use DuckDuck. I use another one called Givero. There are lots of alternatives out there. And typically what I get results just as fast. And typically I get results that are just as good or maybe even better. I feel so good about, uh, you know, simply going with the alternative. And if everybody decides to do that, you'll see they'll change their conduct in a split of an atom second. Yeah, you're, you're doing the right thing, Dan, I think. You're doing the right thing. <laughs> well, well, we, we know there actually are choices for some of the, our, 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 our listeners out there. Yes, they can choose to move. They aren't because locked in as maybe they think they are. And that's, and that's really part of the reason we have this. But it's fantastic to, to hear your story, Dan. And, and, and you are at the forefront of this activity. As Brendan said, you are doing the right thing. You're making, you're, you're making a change in your own activity, which is fantastic. And, and this is why we're, we do this podcast, to give people ideas to, and to shake the status quo. Um, and we're delighted to have you. Thank you, Dan. You're so kind. Thank you, Brendan, again, as yeah, always. Fascinating my podcast. Thanks, Dan. Thanks so much. Yeah, and we'll be back again early in the new year. I'd like to wish all our listeners a very happy Christmas and a fantastic 2020. We'll talk to you from Dublin, from Paris, wherever you are. Have a fantastic end of the yeah, year. See you in 2020, folks. Take care. Bye.